Welcome to Authors in Conversation, the United States in the World series podcast from Cornell University Press. Hi, everybody. This is Judy Wu. I'm a professor at University of California, Irvine. I'm also one of the co-editors of the Cornell University U.S. in the World book series. And I'm so thrilled today to be talking to Tessa Winkleman, who is at UNLV and the author of this fantastic book called Dangerous Intercourse. Gender and Interracial Relations in the American Colonial Philippines, 1898 to 1946. So welcome, Tessa. Hi, thanks, Judy. It's really great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about your book. Um, so I'm so intrigued by the title of your book, Dangerous Intercourse. Yeah. So why this particular <laughs> phrase? Why intercourse? Um, how is it dangerous? And who's it dangerous for? Yeah, it's funny. Like, Lots of people like the title, like over winter break, my mom was essentially trying to like sell my book at a Christmas party to all the, the people that were there. And she's like, it's a history book. And people would look at the title and be like, it doesn't sound like it's a history book, <laughs> but it's actually a name that I got from the archives. So there was a, a surgeon general for the US military. Um, he, he made this sanitation pamphlet that was going to be distributed free to the U.S. naval personnel that was going deploying to the Philippines in 1899 for the war. And there was a particular set of information in the pamphlet that, that caught my attention. It, it said intercourse with them will be dangerous. The natives in all the towns of the Philippines are prone to all sorts of diseases. And he goes on to name like cholera and all these conditions. But then at the very end, he lists syphilis and gonorrhea and stuff so I was like oh this isn't just about like contagion through sneezes and stuff this is about sexual relationships so I kind of lifted the title from that sanitation pamphlet and uh, I was compelled by the title because it intercourse was dangerous for you know in in his eyes for the troops, right, because of how it would imperil their, their bodies, their virility, et cetera, um, and affect how they performed in battle. But it was also dangerous in a variety of different ways, as my book kind of lays out, right? I mean, the, the kind of baseline, the, the, the basic justification for empire was, was white superiority, right? Like was these ideas of the racial inferiority of non-white peoples. So so things like interracial marriage, for example, I think was a dangerous prospect for the, the colonial occupiers because, you know, for, for many Filipinos, that type of formalized relationship signified to them that they were racially equal, right? Or that the empire saw them as, as somewhat racially equal. And that is, you know, against the whole kind of justification for why Americans saw themselves as being there. So it was dangerous in that way, but it was also dangerous for, I mean, mostly I point out in my book, I think the, the people that were ultimately in the most physical, economic and social danger was the Filipino women at the center of these relationships, right? They were in danger of abuse. They were in danger of being sexually violated by the troops, they were in danger of being abandoned with children, with mixed race children, and they were the ones that that lived with dangerous intercourse. But the longevity of these relationships really 
shape their lives in, in much more meaningful and longer ways, I found, than the Americans. I was just going to say, I really appreciate how multi-layered your book is, that you're looking at these set of interactions from multiple lenses, um, different perspectives, um, and it's so beautiful to see it come together. Thank how did you, you become inspired to do this work? I think it's a long time coming for me. I, I grew up, so my mom is Filipina, my dad is is white, and I grew up always kind of getting asked, like if I was from a military family, and I don't think I understood really uh, growing up why that was what people immediately thought. And I, I, I had the sense that it wasn't, you know, I wasn't special, right? I, I knew that it was, there was lots of families like mine. And I think growing up, it, it was something that I was interested in kind of figuring out, right? Like, why does everybody ask me about the military? And then as I kind of learned about US history, I was like, well, is this really just a World War II thing, right? Is this um, where it starts with the kind of rest and wreck industries that, that kind of spring up in the Asia Pacific region after, during World War II and after during uh, the Cold War in Vietnam. So when I went to grad school at, to work with, you know, Augusto Espiritu, he was like, nobody's done research on the, this period. Right, a lot of, you know, and I was like, yeah, a lot of the research is kind of like World War II and later. So, you know, we both knew that's not where the story starts. <laughs> and that was kind of, you know, so it's been a long standing interest. And then I did some language immersion trips in the Philippines and uh, we went to places like Subic Bay. And you could see everywhere all over the town was was Amerasian uh, folks just, you know, um, looking out of place, but they, <laughs> they were born and raised there, right? Um, so yeah, that those those types of trips to the Philippines also kind of heightened my uh, awareness of you know the longer history and how it had kind of you know developed into what I was experiencing there. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that you mentioned in the book is that multiraciality, mestizo identity is something that has a long tradition in the Philippines. Uh -huh. right? It was under Spanish colonial rule for, for centuries. Yeah. Um, and so why do you think there was a slightly different valence to multiraciality when, it, when the Philippines come under US occupation? It, it's funny, I, was, I talked to my friends about this. I was like, you know, when Americans came to the Philippines to occupy, in 1898, a lot of the Filipino elites were Spanish mestizos and Chinese mestizos, and they were in politics. And but when you get to like, you know, through the American occupation and, and after, there's not really too many American mestizos that are in those same kind of levels of political power. Right? I mean, they might have made kind of local names for themselves. It's like business owners or, or what have you. But I think, I mean, I think it part of it is the, the 
scope and the kind of broadness of, of U.S. imperialism in the Philippines versus the Spanish colonialism, because for a lot of those 500 years, um, the, the Spanish didn't have a, a ton of people there. It was kind of towards the, the last like 50 to 100 years that, that more troops were kind of sent in and more, more people went to the Philippines to try to you know, pull in the south and pull in the north in more kind of effective ways. Um, and also kind of fending off advances from the British, et cetera. So for a long time, you know, there, there, the number of people from Spain wasn't that many. And those people kind of just integrated into communities and then their, their kids became leaders in the community because of their connections with the Spanish empire and, and the resources that it afforded them. And for, for Americans, I mean, I think as much as there is this kind of hostility against the Spanish empire that culminates in the, the revolution against Spain in the Philippines. Um, it, I do, in the sources that I've read, it, I do get the sense that Spanish mestizos or Chinese mestizos um, didn't necessarily have the same type of stigma around them and their origins as uh, American mestizos who, um, by and large, like Filipinos characterize them as, you know, the products of imperial violence. There's that chapter in the book about the Filipino writers um, that talk about these kinds of relationships. And, you know, even in stories where there are these good American characters, so-called good American characters that marry and save Filipinas, they're still kind of you know, they're still kind of full of themselves and self-centered and, and uh, don't treat Filipinos as equals, right? Um, so it, it, there is, for me in the sources, a sense that, that Filipinos um, understood American mestizos more as, a, as symptomatic of American power, greed, and imperialism in the islands. And that's not to say that those, those families didn't have positions of prominence, um, but it, it is to say that, that they, um, the American mestizo community seemed to kind of isolate itself a lot more as well, right? They, they tended to stay um, as a, a kind of American community or, or kind of like a insulated community from other Filipino communities, even though uh, Filipino communities were more welcoming of them. A lot of the, these dads like really tried to instill in them their Americanness, right? That they were different somehow, even though they're born and raised in the Philippines like everyone else, right? That didn't have an American dad. Um, so I think there's also that that sense of like you know, these mestizo kids um, were taught to think that they're they're better in various ways, right? That's really interesting. I was thinking about your comment that Filipino writers interpreted these multiracial relationships and families as a product of American empire. And we began by talking about how these relationships were considered dangerous on, from the perspective of the US military. Mm -hmm. But you also have this really interesting interpretation of these relationships. So in your introduction, you talk about, well, interracial intercourse pose a set of dangerous possibilities to colonial officials, 
it was also of vital importance to the consolidation of imperial rule and legitimacy in the Philippines. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that kind of contradictory positioning of sexual, um, of dangerous intercourse as both dangerous, but also essential? Yeah, it's so, I think what it really illustrates is that as much as imperialism has these ideologies of like, white racial superiority, right? white supremacy and, and inferiority of non-white peoples, it's just as much practical. The processes of imperialism are just as much practical as they are ideological, right? And so when, when uh, colonists are, are in the Philippines and they're trying to consolidate 7,000 islands under the US flag, um, they really come to rely heavily on uh, intermarried men or men in relationships with local women who have access to communities, um, who have access to resources, who have access to knowledge, uh, language knowledge, right? all these things that are gonna help them um, to bring various populations more and more under the US flag. Um, and so even though, you know, uh, colonial officials would talk about how they thought these men were deviant and, and kind of coarse, like American frontiersmen, right? They, they relied on them. They were literally their guides, their hosts, um, and their informants, right? To help them uh, figure out the best ways to um, bring certain populations to heal, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, a lot of these intermarried men are, are men in relationships with local women um, were vital intermediaries. Right? Yeah. Your characterization of these relationships and how they bolster um, American empire really resonates, I think, with the scholarship that has been emerging, has emerged on settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. And you make this really intriguing comment about how to understand the Philippines in light of that, that scholarship. So the Philippines during this period as an American colony with settlers rather than an American settler colony. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm really interested in the way that you're making this distinction um, yeah. with settlers as opposed to settler colony. Could you talk a little bit more about why you want to make that distinction? Yeah, I, I think it's it's so messy and so hard to kind of draw the line um, in terms of how how is this, you know, where do we see the apparatuses of settler colony? Where do they end? Because they never really end, right? Um, and when I workshop this with people in, in my department here, people that are um, more, you know, Native American Indigenous studies, they, they kind of helped me try to uh, wrap my head around what, what was happening in the Philippines, right? The Spanish Empire was doing various kinds of things in the Philippines that, you know, were very much like settler uh, colonialism in the U.S., right? They were sending soldiers and, and prisoners down to the Southern Philippines um, to kind of populate and settle that area as a way to, you know, hopefully kind of disempower the local Muslim inhabitants. And the U.S. kind of continues those same projects. And, and a lot of the settlers that are helping to consolidate U.S. empire are mixed race couples, right? Um, because they are more often the ones that stay. A lot of the 
the soldiers that are in the Philippines, you know, even if they have wives or children, I mean, most of them leave when their their time is up, right? But uh, the ones that choose to stay usually do so because they have either business interests or they have formed some kinds of families, you know, in the Philippines, whether they're formal or informal. And so, you know, the the similarities between U.S. settler colonialism in in, in North America, right, are, are numerous. The same people, you know, the same medical doctors that practiced in the Plains Wars in, in the U.S. were the first people they recruited to go um, be doctors in the Philippines because they felt that these doctors would be more familiar with, um, you know, the types of peoples they would encounter, the same kinds of scorched earth tactics of like, you know, first genocide and then uh, assimilate, right, the same kinds of um, tactics were used in the southern Philippines, the same kind of boarding school models. Um, uh, Barros, who is the UC president at the time, right? He his kind of curriculum for boarding schools was the same kind of curriculum that was used in the Philippines. Um, and at the same time, you know what happens with the Philippines is very different from what happens in the U.S. It doesn't become a state. It doesn't become fully incorporated, right? It becomes independent. And yet, I mean, independence is one of those kind of fraught uh, terms, right? Because the US military still has, at least to these bases, the largest kind of naval overseas base that the US has up until the 90s is in the Philippines, right? Um, so that is very much like, you know, as, as people have pointed out, who are looking at like things like settler militarism, that's very much uh, like what you would see in a settler colony, right? except it's being operated by the US military um, in a supposedly independent. But I think also that the actors that are in my book also think about the Philippine system. I mean, they, they very much understand it as the East and like the, the so-called Orient, right? But they talk about it as a frontier of the United States. And they talk if they call it the West, the farthest West of the United States. So they're even kind of uh, orienting them, themselves geographically as Asia Pacific is going to be our frontier, right? our West. Um, and I think, you know, you could even talk about places like Puerto Rico and, and Cuba as part of this kind of Western um, historical uh, trajectory. I mean, I think Julio Capo in his book, um, Welcome to Fairyland, talks about Miami right, as, as part of the U.S. Western scholarship um, for much the same reasons. One of the things I find really interesting about your book is that it does connect the scholarship on the U.S. continental West with the overseas U.S. empire. Um, and you have this beautiful phrase or sentence. You're asking us to, quote, reorient our geographical framework to understand this vast ocean world specifically current and former possessions of the United States, such as Hawaii and the Philippines, as also belonging to a Western historical trajectory, and to consider how domestic settler colonial history informed the shape of imperialism in the Philippines. So I was wondering if you wanted to elaborate more about this, um, how you respatialize our understanding of US history. Um, and in addition to kind of crossing the oceans, one of the fascinating aspects I find about your book is for us to really think about 
um, the geography of the Philippines, as you mentioned, 7,000 islands, mm -hmm. um, and there's regional differences as well in terms of U.S. imperial rule within the Philippines. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it all, the way that, that Americans are thinking about, uh, you know, Hawaii and Marshall Islands and the Philippines, it, it's all kind of arising from this, um, you know, scholars have talked about the crisis in masculinity and the closing of the American frontier and all this, um, these ideas that, you know, American vitality is, is uh, going to end because there's no more wild supreme, right? Um, supposedly. And they, they orient their gaze farther west, right? Like, so you can see the, the kind of direct kind of connections with um, just the, the US West Coast and places like Hawaii and the Philippines, et cetera, right? So like, um, you know, for example, like troops that are headed to the Philippines that they're leaving from, from the Presidio in San Francisco. And a lot of them are coming from the Midwest, which is also considered the West, right? Um, and the way that they're writing about and thinking about places like the Philippines, they're talking about uh, uh, Kanaka Maui in the same kind of racist um, slurs as they apply to Native peoples. They talk about the men that have relations with with indigenous people in the same way as they talk about rugged frontiersmen as, as coarse, as um, deviant, et cetera. Um, and so in, th in their minds, and I think as I kind of read more sources in my mind, I was like, oh, this is just, just moving. <laughs> you know, this is just moving farther west. And a lot of the, the kind of terms, I mean, if you look at a lot of the early interviews that American colonists are doing with elites in the Philippines as they're trying to assess the state of the colony and kind of get a lay of the land, they're talking about uh, native people in the Philippines, um, Filipinos, Chinese, indigenous, Moro, as Indians. <laughs> That's the kind of um, name that is, is what you'll see in these kind of early documents. And that changes over the next kind of decade. Um, but that is initially, you know, how they understand what they're doing, right? Is this is just a new American Western frontier. And these are just new Indians. And I think drawing in the Asia Pacific into historiography, I think has been really fruitful. A lot of uh, really great works that I've seen lately are, are doing similar types of works, looking at like global indigeneities and how Asia Pacific histories really kind of speak to the histories of US settler colonialism or, and settler colonialism around the world. Yeah, that was my thinking when I was asking us to reorient our geographical understanding. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more about even some of the regional differences within the Philippines? Yeah. So. In the Philippines, um, I mean, the, the entire 7,000 islands was thought of as a frontier, right? Um, 
but even within that frontier, there were some places that were more frontier than others, right? So in a place like Manila, which was you know, very highly Europeanized because of the kind of um, dense Spanish population there, um, and is kind of the, the major, a major hub of trading and commerce for so many years, um, it was already kind of a thriving and bustling city with lots of different uh, ethnic groups and religions, right? Um, places that American colonists came to think of as more unruly, right, and as more approximating what they knew of, you know, of a frontier. So places like um, the northern Cordilleras mountain ranges, right, where you have a lot of indigenous um, groups, as well as the southern island of Mindanao and the Sulu archipelago, which was mostly um, Muslim. Malaysian and um, Filipino and indigenous groups, right? So those places that, that had kind of um, been less incorporated under the Spanish period were seen as like the kind of problem areas, right? That were going to be, they're gonna require different types of tools of empire to, to kind of bring uh, under the flag, right? And what Americans knew was, was the tools of settler colonialism to do that. And so they did the same kinds of things. Like in the South, they they made essentially kind of treaties and then broke them. You know, I wonder where they learned that from. Um, and then you know, wars of extermination turned into kind of uh, assimilationist practices, sending people they didn't want in Manila down to amalgamate with the Muslim population, right? In the north, it's much more of the kind of uh, assimilationist practices we see um, in the, the later 1800s in the US where they're um, sending teachers, psychologists, and trying to set up schools for indigenous children. They at the same time learn from their projects in the US where in the Philippines they don't um, set up boarding schools. They don't take, you know, in many of the schools in the North, they don't take children away from their home. They just kind of ask families to send their kids, right? So they're seen as, um, you know, benevolent versus we're taking children away. Right? Um, so it's, you know, the tools of settler colonialism, but after uh, having honed and refined them in, in the U.S. West, right? I really appreciate how you provide these kind of micro insights of to what's happening at the at the local level and then being able to pan out and help us understand that this is a repetition of patterns of technologies of empire. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned previously, I really appreciate the, the layering of your interpretation. You look at discourse, you look at lived experiences, you look at institutionalized practices of surveillance. And I wanted to um, ask you if you could say a little bit more about sources that you use, uh -huh. what were some of your favorite sources, were there support sources that surprised you? Yeah, so, I mean, I think for a project that's looking at like sexual relationships and gender, I mean, people that do gender and sexuality studies in history know that they're gonna have a problem with sources and they know that a lot of times they're just going to have to do 
more work and look at more things and you know pull in interdisciplinary sources um and so I, I think that's and even you know when I was a grad student I was kind of told by by faculty members like well do you think you're really going to find stuff about you know people talking about their mistresses and stuff and I was like you know I don't know I'm a grad student <laughs> I've never done research um maybe right I mean uh and, and it wasn't like encouraging feedback when, when I first kind of started this. I was like, well, you know, like other people that have done these projects in, in terms of European empires have found stuff. So I think I'm going to find stuff. Um, but I did have to look at a really broad variety of sources, right? So I had to look at the institutional sources to get a sense of um, how the government was, you know, thinking about uh, things like you know, troops infected with syphilis and the troop effectiveness rates. So I knew I was going to find stuff there. Um, and I looked at uh, memoirs of soldiers that talked about their own relationships with, with Filipinas. Um, I did oral histories with some descendants of, of people to get their sense of, you know, uh, what made these relationships work and how did their great-grandparents understand one another um, and what did they leave your family with right in terms of a kind of historical legacy um, but I was also reading things like farmers almanacs <laughs> right like what does that have to do with like what I was looking at um, I mean when I kind of found mention of this agricultural colony that was made up of mixed race couples I was like okay so the department of agriculture is going to have information on this and their kind of main uh, uh, publication was this farming almanac. So they would highlight like various interracial couples that were doing, you know, doing good in the in the south of Philippines um, to encourage other people to settle there. Um, and then I looked, you know, I I, I thought there's going to be stuff in literature right and that was a chapter that I really hated writing because I hadn't really done like critical literary analysis since, since like undergrad I have a degree in English a BA right but that was like a long time ago and I was like oh my god some days I was just banging my head against the desk being like how am I going to talk about these literary sources <laughs> um so that was a very fraught process for me but um you know I'm 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 glad I included them because of the different kind of angle that they approach the subject from right? and the different kind of perspective from Filipino writers that they um, can provide us. Um, and sources that I thought were fun or my favorite sources um, or unexpected. I mean, the, there was a, a set of sources. It was a set of interviews and it was the title of these interviews was the Friarland survey. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to find in this. They're going to be talking to people about the Spanish friars. So I know the Spanish friars had lots of mixed race kids, like crossing my fingers that comes up and it comes up so much <laughs> like that. It seems like that was all Americans wanted to talk about when they're interviewing people. So that was really surprising to me that like 
even when the Filipinos that they were talking to were trying to talk about different topics, the American interviewers would be like, well, go back to the Spanish friars and their mistresses, please. And like, could you keep talking about that? And I was like, well, this is so weird. These interviewers just really want to know about the sex lives of Spanish friars. Um, and then I and then I realized, oh, well, it's because these same intimacies are already happening with with U.S. soldiers and people are trying to get a, a grasp on, well, how are Filipinos going to respond to them? Let's see how they think about those same types of relationships. I, I was like, that, that must be part of why there's this kind of lurid interest in the sex lives of friends, right? Um, yeah, I also really enjoyed the, the, the beer the beer sources there. <laughs> um, it, it's just so wild that the, the colonists, you know, were thinking that beer was going to save soldiers from syphilis, that that beer was the prophylactic that the empire needed <laughs> to, to save men's bodies from the women of the Philippines. Um, so I, I laughed a lot when I was writing. <laughs> That is so great. And actually, I, this reminds me, you went to UCI as an undergraduate. That's yes, where you got your yeah. English degree, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go Anteaters. Yeah. yeah, my favorite, my favorite mascot that I've ever had, Anteaters. <laughs> so I don't know if you want to share more about what were some of your favorite aspects of your book, or maybe some of the most difficult aspects of your book to write. Uh -huh. I mean, I really like the... Uh, the, the chapter with the, uh, the court cases, that also, that was a late addition to the book. And it was only because I had came across uh, these Supreme Court records that I had never seen before. Um, and I don't know why they haven't been used. I think, I think it's highly likely that, that a lot of the sources just became digitized by uh, law schools in the Philippines. So they put up like what what types of summaries that they had. I think a lot of the kind of um, paperwork and transcripts have, have probably kind of gotten destroyed in World War II, but a lot of the records remained. Um, and so, you know, I didn't get like word for word transcripts, but a lot of the court summaries were being digitized. And so I just started looking through them to see if I, you know, first I started going through and looking for American names right, um, or American sounding names. And that was how I found some of these sources that were um, court cases involving civil and family law that went all the way up to the Supreme Court in the Philippines. Um, and I really loved those cases because it, it really highlighted how Filipino women, how far they were willing to go to get what they knew that they deserved, right, whether that was custody of their own kids right? um, or spousal support or inheritances that are left to them in the wills of their spouses, <laughs> right? That it's often their erstwhile American in-laws are trying to take away from them, right? trying to take away their own kids um, or support, right? So even like, I mean, these relationships were precarious enough, but with women that were lucky enough to, to kind of have a formal marriage and like a contract that says they were owed something, right? Even for them, 
it wasn't guaranteed. And even where their, their spouse left a will saying, I'm going to leave this money to my Filipino wife and children, it, it didn't guarantee really that they were going to get it. Um, so these women often had to go to court because white family in, in the U.S. was like, they would argue, well, you know, in Kentucky, there's miscegenation law, so your marriage is invalid, so you don't get any of this, even though there's a will. Um, and, it, you know, what you see in a lot of court cases like this, and, and even in other um, colonial locations, right, that the women often win, right, because, um, because of kind of the legal parameters, like if there is a there is a will and it's been assessed and, you know, the court can't really go against that because the family's arguing that you're a sexually non-white woman, right? Because the facts are that there is a will, right? The facts are, we know that you're the birth mother of this child. So we, we can't legally give this child to someone that we can't verify is actually her family. Right. Even though the court might have wanted to do those things and might have wanted to side with, with um, the people that were trying to um, take their families and inheritances away, um, women often succeeded in the courts. And it was just so great to see. I mean, even, you know, they go through all these hoops knowing that they're going to be vilified, knowing that they're going to, you know, preparations are going to be dragged through the mud and that it was probably going to show up in the press. And I don't even know how they're paying for it, right? Paying for the legal representation. Um, and they still did it. So that was a you know, great chapter to write. That's a terrific find. Yeah. Um, I, I know this book is about a particular time and place, mm -hmm. but I think the arguments that you're making actually resonate beyond right, the Philippines, mm -hmm. beyond US colonization. And so I was wondering if you um, would like to share what you think are um, kind of maybe the legacies, the larger implications of your study. Yeah, it, it's, it was a lot of these kind of presentist concerns that brought me to this project. Um, like the, the Amerasian um, population in places like along the Post City, right? And, um, the kind of persistent like inquiry of, of whether you know as a military brat or whatever. Um, and even like growing up you know as my parents got divorced and seeing how how it was for my mom trying to to enter the dating pool again and, and kind of seeing and understanding how how people expected her to be as an Asian woman um, So, you know, I, I, I looked at things like the, the Amerasian Homecoming Act, um, this legislation after the Vietnam War that, that recognizes that there's all these mixture of kids that are being born all over Southeast Asia because of US occupations there. Um, and, and setting out a path for uh, preferential immigration status for them. And yet the Philippines is never, I mean, there is like three different, three different uh, Amerasian acts that, that get passed and, and none of them apply to Filipinos. 
Right? The Philippines is a country that's consistently left off of there. And uh, in various accounts that I've read, the, the number of Philippine Amerasians surpasses like most other Southeast Asian countries in, in terms of like your like volume and numbers. So I, it was something that I was like, why, why aren't they on there? And the, the laws are kind of skirting around the issue saying, well, we're going to include places that are, that were active war zones where we understand that such children will face discrimination. Right? And so I began to understand, well, this is basically saying the Philippines was never an active war zone. The Philippines has a different sort of relationship with the United States, not one of occupier occupied, right? Uh, the Philippines is more racially tolerant because of its years of interracial mixing. And so we can just leave them out of this, right? When, when really, I mean, all those, those uh, kind of reasons don't make any sense. Right? Um, it, it's really, I feel like uh, the, the people that end this probably knew that there were going to be so many more people from the Philippines that this would apply to, right? And it, it's kind of that, that yellow peril moment again, where we, where I understand this as lawmakers not wanting to, quote unquote, open the floodgates. It's gonna kind of limit it to um, as small of a population as possible. And they do that by invoking this idea of US exceptionalism. Um, that, that the US is somehow different, that the US has never, an occupying power in the Philippines. The U.S. and the Philippines have a long shared friendship. We still see that in a lot of the documents that talk about the Philippines, like in the Department of Defense uh, 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 documents and in the kind of uh, uh, United Nations kind of documents, they talk about the Philippines as Asia's oldest democracy, how the U.S. shares a special relationship with the Philippines. And they talk about it as like, as a, a long romance, you know, a long kind of familial relationship. And when the history is actually that, um, you know, in, in the chapter with the court cases, the, the courts and, and Americans did all they could to deny those familial, familial relationships and say that they would never be a part of the American. Right? Um, and uh, it really, you know, doing this history, um, I mean, I hope that, that it will kind of uh, help people to understand why, why things also like uh, the recent uh, tragic Atlanta spa shootings, why, why things like that happen. They're not random, they're not, um, you know, this person didn't target these places um, for no reason, right? But these are the, the deeper, this is the deeper history that, that um, shows us how Filipino women and Asian women more broadly came to be understood by Americans and how the Philippines and its people came to be understood and um, why it's so difficult to kind of uh, see and undo is because of this longevity, right? It's just so deeply ingrained and it has been for a long time. And these, the, the dangerous ideas about 
intercourse that these colonists made about Filipino women and how they characterized them continue to be such a significant way that, that many Americans think about. Um, so that was also a hope of mine to kind of um, show this longer history and how it still continues to be something that shapes women's lives, Asian women's lives in significant and sometimes life and death ways as it did then. Yeah. Thank you so much for your important contribution to the historiography, to our public conversation. So appreciative of your work. Thank you, Tessa. Thank you, Judy. This is really great. Thank you for your really great questions. Thank you for listening to Authors in Conversation, the United States and the World series podcast from Cornell University Press. <laughs>